Hey there, if you end up liking this episode of Album Epitaph, you'll probably like the next one as well, so please check it out. We're taking on the huge business of Christmas music, and we hope you can hear it before the holidays. Also, please know that we would love it if you could share Album Epitaph with anyone you think that might like it, or if you could subscribe and review Album Epitaph wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference, and thanks for your support. We appreciate it. Okay, well, um, yeah, let's go. Album Epitaph is produced by the Noise Cancelling Group. This is Album Epitaph, a podcast that dives into the unheralded albums which represent an era, a moment, and explains why it mattered. Well, it all matters. Music matters. And in 1974, when the live show reigned supreme, when groups made music but individuals got the credit, and when bands could easily get carried away, well, it was a time to take your five bucks and head on down to the Commodore Ballroom to catch the magic. On this episode, 1974 and the height of the live rock show. Gumbo, music, and a drummer with a black eye. All heard through the sounds of Feats to Bail Me Now. There was a woman in Georgia, didn't feel just right. She has fever all day and chills at night. Now things got worse, yes, a serious bind. In times like this, it takes a man that's a style like getting out of a vine. A doctor of the heart and a doctor of the mind. That's the funky sound of Rock and Roll Doctor, the lead song and classic sound of Little Feet's 1974 album, Feet's Don't Fail Me Now. I love that title. And as Lowell George, leader of Little Feet, would sing later in this song, it's two degrees in bebop, a PhD in swing, he's a master of rhythm, he's a rock and roll king. (laughs) You can't help but smile listening to this album. Little Feet is one of the great, unheralded bands of the 1970s. They didn't sell big numbers, but are widely regarded as one of the best live bands ever. They were always considered a musician's band, whatever that meant. But many greats have sung their praises. Jimmy Page called him his favorite American group. So did Mick Jagger. They were loved by Eric Clapton, Keith Richards, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, Steve Earle, Bonnie Raitt, James Brown, Jackson. It goes on and on. It seems like the better the musician is, the more they like Little Feet. And this album, Feet's Don't Fail Me Now, is Little Feet at their peak. It's their best studio album. Okay, well, I know fans might say the previous one was, but for me, this is as good as Little Feet gets. And Feet's Don't Fail Me Now shows off the band's funny, groovy, and eclectic songwriting. Their version of rock music is unlike any other, drawing influences from all types of American music, the North, the South, Funk, jazz, swamp rock, New Orleans rhythms, all of it. They called it gumbo American music.
still, this year is also a peak for the band in the sense that it all got worse from here, leading to an ugly end in 1979. Even though the band has continued to tour with different lineups until recently, the story of Little Feet is a clear rise and fall. But what matters about this band isn't really that rise and fall. I mean, it's true, Little Feet fits many cliches of 70s rock. The love triangles, the cocaine, the band regularly breaking up, a lot of motorcycle crashes? I mean, these guys went big. But far more important than any of that is that Little Feet really was one of the best live rock bands music has ever seen. Their talent, performance, and cohesiveness as a live band are world-class, almost unmatched even today. These guys stole shows from more famous bands. They made tens of thousands of people groove and sweat together for hours. And that's something that's become more and more rare as time has gone on. Because in a lot of ways, the band's peak here in 1974 is also probably the peak of live rock music in general. Rock music. The live rock band. The concert bills of this year are filled with legends of the road. And it's crazy to think that at the time, Little Feet might have been one of the best in the era of the best. To talk about Little Feet is to talk about musicianship and the magic that can be reached when talented musicians play together night after night, year after year. That magic can't be bought or inherited or recreated or YouTube. There, there, there's no fast track for this stuff. You can only earn it by putting in the time together, always chasing the feeling that comes when a band becomes bigger than the sum of its parts. And you know what? Little Feet were a hell of a lot of fun, too. There are a lot of great albums out there, many forgotten. Sometimes great albums get made that go unrecognized, that never blow up or get as big as a lot of experts think they should, and we never really figure out why. Some artists have all the markings of success, talent, creativity, commitment, attention to detail, all, all of it. But still, commercial success sometimes just doesn't happen. You know, in all of the interviews done by the guys in Little Feet in the 70s, the most common question is something like, you guys are so good, why aren't you bigger? And they never had a good answer. That's why Little Feet has always felt like a bit of a secret. A band right there, playing to see, on a major label and playing big rooms, but, but a band that only some people had ever really heard. And for those people, well, it was like they were in on a secret. They were on Team Little Feet and would be there for life. And the coolest thing about cult bands like this is that even though they might seem exclusive from the outside, you can actually join the team whenever you want. All you got to do is invest. This episode of Album Epitaph focuses on the specifics of being in a band and on writing interesting songs. But above all, this episode is about magic. Magic's a hard thing to describe, but it's easy to feel if you're around it. When you're at the level that Little Feet got to, a group of musicians can come together and become one thing. 
You get so good, so tight, that you can let go and join something bigger than yourself. Well, I, I call it magic. I gave you This is really what Album Epitaph is all about. We, we treat albums as historical artifacts that can help us understand where we're coming from. We can study an era in music history, say, thinking about the height of live band magic, and we can apply that understanding to music today. We can do it because albums are always a product of the time they were created. An album's context can end up mattering as much as live music itself. If you don't see Little Feet as part of a movement of great live rock bands, it's hard to appreciate how special they really were. So to understand Feats Don't Fail Me Now, we've got to view it as part of an era in music. A time when the positivity of the 60s had lost steam. A time when the music industry was huge but, but bloated. And more importantly, a time that was flush with many of the great live bands. We're talking 1974. 1974 isn't the beginning or the end of an era in pop music. It's smack dab in the middle, the peak. The 60s died hard after the summer of love, and 1974 is a full five years removed from that San Fran psychedelic hippie thing. Five long years. I picture the music industry at the time as a big party. It's very positive at the beginning. More and more people are arriving. Good times, good vibes, good music. By midnight, well, that's like 1969. The party is really peaking. Everybody loves everybody. But 1974? Well, feels a bit like four in the morning. Incoherent conflict. Bitterness. Some people refusing to leave, each hour getting uglier and uglier. Musicians of the era describe the industry as being chaotic, stale, and bloated. Sure, a lot of money was kicking around supporting a few massive albums and tours. But while the industry was huge commercially, its growth had slowed and conflicts were starting to emerge everywhere. This is three years before the energies of punk and new wave began to shake things up, so 1974 felt, for many, like being stuck on the peak of the mountain. Nowhere to go but down. Not only did people feel uneasy on top of the mountain, but there was stuff going on in the world that was difficult to be optimistic about. Feats Don't Fail Me Now was released on the same day that President Nixon resigned following the Watergate scandal. The same day. But that wasn't much of a relief for anyone because the Vietnam War was still raging and it was clear by then that the war was senseless, horrific, unwinnable. So combine Vietnam and Watergate with a stagnant economy, an oil crisis making gas 400% more expensive, ongoing conflicts over civil rights, the, the lost battle against nuclear weapons, and just generally, man, 1974 wasn't a lot of fun. The earnestness of the hippie movement was now cynical, disappointed, exhausted.
Lowell George, leader of Little Feet, talked about how the politics of the time was wearing him out. He said he couldn't stop reading the papers and being terrified by what he read. He couldn't stop seeing hardship everywhere and it affected him. His response was to keep it out of his music, to not discuss it, to not let people fire him up on political issues, but to deflate everything with humor. You can hear that tone all over Little Feet's Feet's Don't Fail Me Now. The lyrics are absurd and light. They're just road songs, mostly. And I think it's a response to the darkness of the time. It helped that George was hilarious and, and really charismatic. So instead of being overtly political, music could be an escape. And that's a big shift. The politics so prevalent in 1969 had left a lot of music by 1974. But 1974 is also the peak of a particular type of band. A type of band that is more rare today in modern music, but one that most rock groups would have aspired to be in the early 70s. The great live rock band. There are two sides of the coin for all of these great live rock bands. The first is that they're made up of killer musicians who were in the industry because they wanted to play music with other great musicians. People who could do more than just shred or whatever. People people who could play with room and feel and could listen and react to others. People who were studied multiple instrumentalists who understood music history and, and could play in any genre. Little Feet is made up of great musicians like that. Like, like really great. Lowell George, singer and guitarist, writer and producer in Little Feet. He had actually played jazz flute as a 20-year-old on a few Frank Sinatra recording sessions. Now listen, if you got into a Frank Sinatra session, you were the best available. And the flute? It's not even George's best instrument. (laughs) We'll get into more of that later when we dive into the album. But the other side of the coin is how these bands were in a music industry that emphasized money earned on the road. This was a touring band industry. Little Feet and their peers viewed themselves as a live band first. Studio records mattered, but they were secondary in a lot of cases. This is an era all about playing 150 shows a year, year after year, and earning a living on the road. One reason why there wasn't as big of an emphasis on live band performance in the past 20 years is that the business model changed. It might be changing again today. We'll spend some time on this idea later. But 1974 is an era when a ticket to a Little Feet show cost about five bucks. That's like 30 bucks today. I mean, today, the cheapest ticket to see a great live band, say Arcade Fire, is about 75 bucks plus a whole host of fees and charges that you don't find out about until later. For Little Feet, you you could walk up to the gate, drop a fiver, have a beer or two, watch the show, and be home in bed by midnight if you wanted. Less money, less pressure, more fun. Today, seeing a live band for a lot of people is a whole event, wiping out a month of disposable income. In fact, over the past 10 years, ticket prices in North America have exploded to an average cost of $96 each. U.S., that's a 22% increase since 2010. 1974 was a totally different vibe. So when you take that talent and that musicianship, the drive to play with others, and you combine it with economic forces that emphasize touring constantly, you get great groups that reach a level of performance that is just special, magic. 
1974 is one of the best years in music for it. And Little Feet, well, they were the second best live rock band in the world. So what bands are we talking about? Well, think about Frank Zappa or Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin played a a legendary three-hour concert in 1975. I mean, three hours. Think about The Who, Pink Floyd, or the Allman Brothers. We're, We're listening to those guys now. Stevie Wonder, Skinner, Grateful Dead, Neil Young and Crazy Horse, P-Funk. I mean, there's many more. These guys were all big in 1974, and man, could they play. These are the heavyweights of live music. But you might have heard me call Little Feet the second best. So who was the greatest? The champ. Who was Muhammad Ali? You just call them the band. They were the best. I heard the drummer of the Black Crows, Steve Gorman, describe it something like this. He said something like, the better you get as a band, the better the band gets. In other words, as you get better as a group of musicians, you gain a deeper understanding of music and it makes you realize that the band was actually better than you ever knew. It keeps going like that. We're going to talk more about the band later in our big idea because Well, although these two groups share a lot of similarities, when it comes to the business side of things, the band and Little Feet did things very differently. So this is an era where the live band is reigning supreme. But before we move on to talk about the specifics of Little Feet, we should mention three other important musical ideas that were going through big changes in 74. Each of them connected to Little Feet in different ways. We're talking about how soul music, country music, and rock music were all jumping into new phases. The early 70s is the start of a new wave of electrified, edgier, more adult soul music. Isaac Hayes, Curtis Mayfield, Marvin Gaye, Sly and the Family Stone, and so many others were releasing music in this era that is far less formulaic than 60s soul. It was also more political and socially charged, darker, as well as, frankly, well, it's just freaking amazing, and we're going to dedicate an episode of Album Epitaph to it later. For now, here's what Lowell George of Little Feet said about Stevie Wonder, the best of this era. I mean, Stevie was in the middle of one of the greatest album runs in history. George said, I'd crawl on my hands and knees to beat on his shoes with a pair of sticks. I mean, he's as good as you can get. It's impossible. It's incredible. It's really interesting, too. I mean, Stevie Wonder can really cross barriers. When you have musical excellence of his caliber, it crosses all boundaries. (laughs) Needless to say, George was influenced by Wonder. Another movement going on in 74 was coming out of Nashville and Texas. Country music was undergoing sweeping changes with releases from Outlaws like Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, as well as George Jones and Chris Christopherson and Dolly Parton. These musicians modernized country by adding singer-songwriter qualities and grittier rock lineups into their music. 
Lowell George actually inspired a lot of this sound with his syncopated rhythms and his slide guitar. But the influence went the other way, too. Dylan, the Stones, the band, the Birds, they were all adding country music elements into their acts at the time, too. There was a real cross-pollinization between country and rock in the early 70s, to everyone's benefit. Those country music outlaws created a second golden age of country music. Today, it's actually kind of hard to hear how amazing this country music was when you compare it to country radio today. I mean, uh, well, well, here's a country hit from today, and then I'll follow it up with a country hit from 1974 by Waylon Jennings. I see your face in the clouds, I smell your perfume and cries, I swear your number's on my phone wants to call. country with with hip-hop is cool and i think sam hunt might be onto something but i miss whalen he's so good so distinctive and and badass and oh sturgill save us please but the other important change in music in the early 70s is this new distinction between hard and soft rock it's kind of strange to consider this but prior to this era there really wasn't much of a line between hard and soft in pop music It, it was all one thing That was true until 1967, at least. Specifically, the Monterey Pop Festival. Monterey is one of the world's most important pop music festivals. It's right up there with Woodstock, and and it featured a real dissonance between hard and soft. About half the bill were groups like the Mamas and the Papas, or Simon and Garfunkel, soft stuff. But the other half was hard, like The Who and Jimi Hendrix. This is the festival when Jimmy set his guitar on fire after playing Wild Thing. Most people know that image. But did you know that Hendrix wasn't the closing act? Someone had to take the stage after the fire was put out? Well, yeah, it was, it was none other than your friend, Philip Wallace Blondheim III, also known as Scott McKenzie. The worlds of soft rock like this and hard rock like Wild Thing begin to diverge at Monterey, 
And it wasn't long before the music industry began to support these two different sounds with totally different business models. Particularly in radio, the AM dial was the official home for radio. It was tightly regulated, more corporate, way less edgy, and and really the perfect home for soft rock. You could tune in to hear superstars like Bread or The Carpenters in the early 70s. But on the FM dial, well, that's where the excitement was. It was less regulated, more free. Before FM payola, before the monopolization of radio in the 90s, FM was simple. Some guy could spin whatever records he wanted for an hour, and if you liked it, you could tune in. These curators were really important. Experts on the scene. Music today isn't curated by humans. And these FM DJs, well, these guys could expose you to a group like Little Feet. The other thing that happened in the business of hard and soft rock is that soft rock stuck with the 7-inch single and the compilation album business model. Hard rock jumped into 12-inch long-playing record albums, and this reinforced the idea that hard rock was deeper than soft rock. In the early 70s, the AM dial and the 7-inch single was for your parents and your kid brother. You were all about the FM dial and the album. So this is where Little Feet sits in the world of music in 1974. They were an amazingly tight rock band with all sorts of eclectic influences. They were writing really interesting songs while performing them night after night, striving for that magic. But it's a difficult time off stage for for America and for the band. Because regardless of the praise from other musicians, Little Feet weren't selling records, and the rampant use of hard drugs in the band was starting to catch up to them. It's in this moment that the music industry reached its peak, that the live show and rock music reached its peak, and that Little Feet reaches its peak, all of it, with nowhere to go but down. But to tell the rest of the story, well, we've got to start at the beginning. And I was out on the road late at night. I seen my pretty Alice in every headlight. Alice. Dallas, Alice. And I've been from Tucson to Tucum Carey to hatch a beat of tone above. Driven every kind of rig that's ever been made. Driven the back road so I wouldn't get way. If you give me weed, white sand wine, and you show me a sign, I'll be willing to be moving. The story of Little Feet is completely intertwined with the story of Lowell George. Even though Little Feet has incredible musicians, keyboard player widely regarded as the best of the era, and a drummer who's right up there with the best, well, this is a Lowell George story. George was born under the Hollywood sign. He was a rich kid, but a black sheep, surrounded by Hollywood elite, but never one to fit in. Certainly not one to follow in his father's footsteps. He liked to spend a lot of time bombing around the hills in a beat-up Morgan race car, finding whatever fun he could get. George was short, portly, they all say. He was always disheveled and sweating. He was always looking a little out of his depth, but always making people laugh. It's often pointed out that George was a lot like the actor Jack Black or John Belushi. For him, more ways than one. 
For a while, he was a hero to all the neighborhood kids on the block because he would round them up on the road and blow up rockets. So, yeah, I mean, Jack Black. He also seems to me to be a very Taoist or, or Buddhist type of guy. He credits friends for providing a, a cone. That's, that's an idea to meditate on. And he was once quoted, well, probably misquoted Socrates saying, in time, all things go wrong and in time, all things go right. He was a fisherman and a black belt, uh, maybe. In an interview about why Little Feet broke up, George mumbled, well, I take it as it comes or as it goes. Very zen. He was charming and charismatic, and he could get you to love him if he wanted you to. Everyone who knew him talks about his sense of humor. Dry, sharp, abstract, ironic, and you can hear it in his lyrics. But he had an edge. He could get nasty. No doubt cocaine played a role in that. So George was a conflicted man, difficult to categorize. Always around people, but always seemingly alone. No one really knows why some people get started and can't stop. There's a lot of lost, talented, rich kids out there who are hurting like George was, and no one's ever going to feel sorry for them. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Anyhow, George picked up music early. At five years old, he was a good harmonica player. Then came saxophone, the guitar, the flute, the oboe, and a bunch of other instruments. Early on, he said he hated rock music and saw himself as a jazz musician, playing jazz flute in those Sinatra sessions after he graduated. But he would change his tune once he got to college and was studying music theory. He had ideas about how to make rock music better. He started to form his own bands and audition for others. George made it into the movies. He formed a few pretty successful rock groups, but his big splash was when he was hired to join Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention. Now, now Zappa is one of the great characters in pop music history, but for now, we should mention that he made some of the most complicated and far-out music of the era. The other thing about Zappa is that he hired the very best musicians. The Mothers of Invention were legit, and Zappa ran the project as his own. He was the leader through and through, strong ideas about how to run a group of musicians and how to operate in the music business. George was paying attention. But after Zappa hired George, everyone soon realized that he was too good to be a sideman. George is a wildly good singer. He's one of the greatest slide guitar players ever, and his songwriting, like the one we just heard, Willing, is deceptively interesting. The guy is the real deal. Okay, so Bonnie Raitt, who's shared the stage with many greats, Jeff Beck, B.B. King, John Prine, she's got 13 Grammys, she's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She put it this way. Lowell was the best singer, songwriter, and guitar player I have ever heard, hands down, in my life. She sings back up on this one. Something happened with George and, and Zappa, and it was decided that George needed to leave the Mothers to form his own band that he himself would lead. 
This might have happened because Zappa thought George's song Willin' was, was good enough for his own project, or it might have happened because Zappa had strict rules against drugs in his band, and George really liked to party. But whatever it was, George went out on his own to form Little Feet, and Zappa ended up helping him get signed to Warner. So George hit the clubs and recruited the best musicians he could find. The thing about LA at the time is that it was the epicenter for rock music in the same way it was for the movies. It's where the most ambitious, the most talented were at. The best musicians from small town America knew that they needed to leave to have a big city, real career. And a real scene had formed. All sorts of great musicians were playing with each other. George ended up playing on at least 40 different records outside of Little Feet. 40. So there was a lot of great options for George. Guys who were really good and who were looking for work. He started with Bill Payne. Bill Payne was another upper-class, classically trained musician. He was the opposite of George in a lot of ways. Slick, tight suits, sharply handsome. But the same in others. Throughout his entire career, he played on a ton of different sessions. Happy to be a keys player for hire. He once said, I'm a musician. I'm not a rock star, not a pop star. And that's true. For him and the rest of the band, these guys were pros. And it's partly why Payne was so open to playing with other genres. That gumbo American music thing. He said you don't need to be from Russia to play Russian classical music, and you don't need to be from the South to play Southern music. And, and that's how Little Feet became such an eclectic band. The, the two core members had studied all kinds of American music. But even in those early days, you can see the roots of three conflicts that would challenge the band in all sorts of ways for the next 10 years. First, the drug use was already totally out of control, and all sorts of stupid stuff happened because of it. Second, the guys in the band were all too good to be sidemen in a Lowell George project. They needed their own creative outputs, too. And third, while George had a totally sincere desire to collaborate with the other great musicians, he was a perfectionist with a total need for control. These tensions never went away for Little Feet. Richie Hayward had moved from Iowa to L.A. to drum professionally. He, he was incredible, mastering better than anyone strange time signatures and changes and syncopation. He could play two songs at once, and then he could go full animal. And being in a group like Little Feet pushed him to get better every day. I mean, today you'd be hard-pressed to find a drummer who was as good as he was. Modern drummer agrees. They said that Hayward was among the most musically stylish and quietly influential drummers of the classic rock era equal parts monster technician and old soul groove master. Oh yeah. Not only that, but he had the highest vocal range in the band and he sang the toughest harmonies. Hayward was another partier to the extreme though. Handsome, crazy, talented, totally out of control. Little Feet would release two albums quickly, both totally directed by George's leader and both critically acclaimed. One of them was called a masterpiece by Rolling Stone. But they still didn't sell, so the guys broke up, or went on hiatus, or whatever. They, they did that sort of thing a lot. But soon Payne and Hayward and George were back together, and they added three new members, eventually forming their classic lineup. 
Kenny Grady took on bass and led the grooves and the positivity for the band for decades to come. Sam Clayton was brought in as second percussionist. From this point forward, Little Feet's rhythms fill out and, and really do become the best of the era. Clayton was another real pro from a family of pro musicians. Here's what his sister sounds like. And finally, George's friend, Paul Barrere, was brought in as second guitarist to complete the lineup. And that's when the magic started to form. George brought this group into the studio to record Little Feet's third album, Dixie Chicken. And Dixie Chicken is, for many fans, the best Little Feet album. It was released in 73, and plenty of the songs on it are terrific. Two Trains, Dixie Chicken, Roll Em Easy. These all end up being core songs for the band, and there's plenty to love. But the best song of the bunch is Fat Man in the Bathtub. This song really shows off what Little Feet would become on Feet's Don't Fail Me Now, and it's kind of like foreshadowing that way. Let's have a quick listen, because it's, it's cool to focus on the rhythm and the lyrics when we do. The lyrics have this strange A-B-B-B rhyme scheme, and then they, the rhythm all falls in unexpected places. It's hard to even simply read the lyrics out loud, so I'll try. Here. Spot check Billy got down on his hands and knees. He said, hey mama, let me check your oil, all right? She said, no, no honey, not tonight. Come back Monday, come back Tuesday, then I might. I said, Juanita, my sweet Juanita, what are you up to? Also, try to count the beat while you listen. Give it an old one, two, three, four. It's tougher than you might expect, even though the song is in basic four, four time. Syncopation is when instrumentation or vocals don't fall clearly on the expected beat of the song. You've got surprises and hesitations all over the place with bass lines and piano licks and vocals all starting and stopping on different spots. That's what's happening in the verse of Fat Man in the Bathtub. And you can also hear, well, I count at least five different drum parts in this song. So even though it's still a poppy or accessible song, it just doesn't get old. But by the time Dixie Chicken was released, many members of Little Feet were getting too good to be second fiddles. And if Dixie Chicken was the best they could do and it still didn't work out commercially, well, what good could come in the future? The guys were broke. So the band was put on ice, but not for long. 
It only took a few weeks for the guys to get bored of driving around the hills looking for fun, and, well, I bet they might have missed the magic. So Little Feet went for it one last time. Not for the last time. But this time, there would be some changes. Namely, George would have to allow for a more democratic approach to songwriting and recording. So we can figure out what all of this adds up to by doing a deep dive into Little Feet's follow-up record. The album would be called Feet's Don't Fail Me Now. A great title for a band on its last legs. Album Epitaph is still building some momentum, and our first season has eight episodes ready to go, but we could use some help reaching fans of music history. If you can think of someone you know who might be interested in this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you could share Album Epitaph with them. And it really does make a difference if we get some nice reviews, so please subscribe and review if you like the show. And email us anytime, info at albumepitaph.com. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. I like email, but I miss the postman. So we've looked at the context Little Feet was working in when they went into the studio to record Feats Don't Fail Me Now in 1974. It's the peak for the music industry, the peak of the live rock band, and the peak of Little Feet magic. We can now look more closely at the album through two lenses in particular, songwriting and performance. We're going to find that this is a, a more commercial Little Feet album, more straightforward, less strange. But it's still Little Feet. The playing is amazing, the, the songwriting deceptively complicated, and the style, well, that's all still there. Bill Payne put it this way, you'd have to play in 10 different bands to play all of the types of music Little Feet can play. That's true. Gumbo American music. There was a woman in Georgia Didn't feel just right She had fever all day And chills at night Rock and Roll Doctor is just a great groovy number to get going with. It's, it's probably the most accessible song on the album, and it, and it shows off some of the core elements of Little Feet's sound. This is a Lowell George song, and in many ways, Lowell George is both the fat man in the bathtub and the Rock and Roll Doctor. There's, there's two sides to this guy. But what stands out for me is how much space there is in this song. There's air here. For a band with six great players, I think it shows a lot of restraint to not fill every space on the track. Rock and Roll Doctor breathes. The other thing here is that right out of the gate, we're hit with some of the best slide playing on the album. George is widely regarded as one of the best slide guitar players ever. So why? Well, it's a few things. First, he really did pioneer the slide, that, that bottleneck on the finger style in rock music. There are guys who did it before, like Elmer James, but not really in this context. And instead of glass, he famously played with a metal socket, a spark plug puller. But more importantly, George created really high sustain and a piercing tone by tuning to open A, that puts way more tension on the strings than open G, and by playing with heavy gauge strings and cranking out a ton of compression. I mean, the use of compression is common today, but in this time, it was a novel way to get your guitar to, to sustain notes without distorting. But it's his playing that really makes the difference. George has this way of going from high to low with his licks. A guitarist's instinct is usually the opposite. But better than that, George would often bend notes and, and play in between notes. 
frequencies that you can't reach on a fretted instrument. Those in-between notes are very human, and it allowed him to play phrases with the guitar that could only be done, well, with the voice or maybe with a horn section. This was all revolutionary at the time. George's playing was very versatile, musical, the opposite of the guitar hero trend. Less Van Halen, more The Edge from U2. It's brilliant. While the album opens with that George song, we jump right into this tune, Oh Atlanta, which was written by the keyboard player Bill Payne. And that's not a coincidence. This is the new, more democratic Little Feet. I'm glad to hear Payne take a couple of shots in this song to show off what an amazing player he is. He's, he's got flow, some of the best. Payne also brings a little more honky-tonk pace here, a little more of a boot-stomping feel. And, that sets up a great contrast with the rest of the album. This the song doesn't groove, but it chugs along. It really is a special type of collaboration in Little Feet. They all talk about it, but Hayward, the drummer, described the writing process clearest. One person would take a demo, a, a pretty tightly formed song, to the band, and from there it would become a massive collaboration to perfect it. Sometimes it would take months on the road for a song to reach its peak and be ready to record. And this brings up a crucial element in Little Feet that doesn't get talked about very often. These guys were able to avoid a lot of conflict with each other by staying as equals on the business side of things. Dividing up the rights to songs could have gotten messy, really messy. It did for a lot of guys in the 70s, but not here. More on this issue is coming up in our big idea. But for now, doesn't Oh Atlanta seem like the perfect road trip song? Skin it back. It continues with the collaboration trend. This is a Paul Barrere song, and right out of the gate, each songwriter delivers the best they've got. And Skin It Back might be my favorite on the album. What a killer group of songs to open up an album with. Skin It Back, I mean, it just keeps on the move. It's so tight, so funky, so groovy. Groove is tough to describe, but I think it's about restraint. You can actually feel it in your body. Everything tenses up, your lips, your chest, but you still gotta move. I mean, ah, damn.
lot of musicians call George one of the best singers ever, and, and I don't disagree. But I think the contrast of Barrera's voice here really works. I love this guy's timbre. It's, it's a great mix of grittiness and smoothness. It just suits the song so well. There's a lot to be said for setting up contrasts in albums. Like O Atlanta's Honky Tonk and this song's vocal, it just makes the rest of the album shine even brighter. Down the Road is another Lowell George track, and really, from this point forward, the rest of the album is led by him. Hayward, the drummer, well, he talked about George's style of leadership. He said that he would really push the guys. George knew the difference between good and bad, and he let people know if something wasn't good. He could be harsh, critical, but both Hayward and Payne credit George for making them better players. I think the most important thing George would demand is restrained playing, playing only the right note and, and not allowing any filler. For guys who can do so much, it must have been so frustrating to be told to do less. I know Hayward complained about it all the time. He said he could never get any drum fills in, never able to show off. After years of complaint, George finally allowed him to do fills, but only with one hand. The other hand had to keep the song going. <laughs> I, I think that's a hilarious compromise. While the band would complain that they weren't allowed to do more, George would complain that, especially for ballads, the band was hard to rein in. Little Feet was like a train, and once they got up to speed, there was no slowing them down. I think George felt like he had to keep the band on the rails, or risk turning into some sort of coked-up version of the Grateful Dead. He wanted to avoid Freebird. I'm glad he was able to. I mean, Feet's Don't Fail Me Now is Little Feet's most disciplined and focused record. Here comes the Tower of Power horn section. Legendary horn and reed players for hire in Los Angeles. These guys played on a ton of great records from the era. Santana, Elton John, Rod Stewart. These guys are real pros. So this song is about an irresistible woman in a bar, which really is what the entire album is all about. The lyrics can be funny. There's, there's a lot of sexual innuendo and man, everything is about the same thing. Being lonely on the road and looking for company or I guess to change it up, uh, leaving for the road and saying goodbye. Like, <laughs> like every song. In just these first six songs alone, these guys give a geography lesson. They mention Kentucky. 
Ohio, Atlanta. They go to Colorado, Texas, Buffalo, Baltimore. They swing by New Orleans and Houston. They're in New York City twice. Chicago. I mean, these are all road songs. The first three songs alone all mention a special woman in Georgia. <laughs> but all three are written by different guys. I mean, it, it's unclear if they're all talking about the same woman or sisters or what. I bet these guys had a lot of fun in Georgia. <laughs> well, let's get out of here and let's listen to the title track. And the title makes sense because it's got all of the elements that make Little Feet different than other bands. Everything we've talked about so far is here, it's just amped up a bit. Like most Lowell George songs, it's odd. There are a bunch of awkward chord changes and the rhythm never really sits still. Guitar players can often fall into chord patterns. It happens easily, and George deliberately breaks those patterns up when a chorus is repeated. He'll add a chord, or maybe swap it for another, and maybe add another bar or two for each verse. It's never predictable. The writing strategy he used was to record himself playing a bunch of different parts, and then splicing the tape up and assembling it in unusual ways. He called that style a cracked mosaic. That's partly why Little Feet songs are so difficult to play. No one covers them, and I think it's because they're just hard to get a handle on. This was pointed out at George's tribute concert when even dozens of world-class musicians there couldn't really figure out these George songs. They're just too strange. So when we say they're hard, it's not in the sense that you need to be a shredder to be able to pull it off. It's just in that it's so unusual, it takes a long time to figure it out. But Feats Don't Fail Me Now is also the most fun song on Little Feet's most fun album. This is a party record, and it's not a coincidence that the band had been getting along better on a personal level than ever before. Payne said that this period of time was the best of his life. He felt more like a band, and you can hear it. Little Feet at their most fun. Their most fun. This song, The Fan, or originally When Shit Hits The Fan, is, is the best song for thinking about rhythms and drumming. It's probably the song that is most out there. Well, here's how the drummer explained it. He said, I'm real proud of The Fan. It was probably the most difficult thing I've ever done. Lowell wrote that song in 1971, and we tried it for three albums to record it, but it was just so difficult to play, we couldn't play it. We would go into the studio and almost get it, but it wasn't quite right. There are only two bars of four in the whole song, and it switches time signatures. Trying for four years on the song helped us finally get it. It turned into something. It was really fun to play, and it took us to new places every time. isn't just about drumming. I mean, the whole band has to be able to follow the drummer, and it pushed songs for Little Feet to get more complicated in all sorts of ways. Now, I happen to think this is the worst song on the album, 
but it might have been the song that helped the band grow the most. I mentioned earlier one of the most important rhythms for Little Feet. It's called New Orleans Second Line, and it's the Little Feet rhythm. It, it sounds like this. Little Feet used this rhythm all the time. It, it really moves songs forward, but it also has this strange combination of bounciness and, and hesitation. The term second line says it all. It's the rhythm that was played during New Orleans funeral processions, handled by the drummers in the second line of the marching band. Bringing that rhythm to rock music was another Little Feet innovation. Now, I'd love to hear what you think about Little Feet rhythms. I'm not a drummer, and my counting gets tricked up all over the place with Little Feet, so if you've got something to share, please send it my way. Rhythms, time signatures, I could use some help. I know there are some great drummers out there, so please let me know what you think. Info at albumepitaph.com. last two songs are the perfect time to talk about Little Feet Live. That's when they were at their best. Cold 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 and Tripe Bass Boogie, they're both songs from previous records and and you can criticize re-releasing old songs, but I think it makes a lot of sense. These guys took songs out onto the road and let them morph and, and change over time. In this case, really improving the song from more of a rock sound to this funkier feel. The guys just wanted to redo. Lowell George was always reworking songs. He, he couldn't resist improving them. It pays off here with Cold, Cold, Cold. Here's one of the many stories about Little Feet Live. After bringing down the house as an opener for the Doobie Brothers, the crowd started to chant feet, feet, feet as Little Feet left the stage. It didn't stop. Roadies tore down the stage, they set it up again, the the crowd didn't stop. The Doobie Brothers took the stage, the crowd didn't stop, through the first song still, feet, 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 feet. Throughout the first three songs of the Doobie Brothers set, the crowd cheered for little feet. And it was like that everywhere they went. The drummer describes little feet live this way, he says, We would change and grow as a result of compromising. After a while, we grew together to become a thing that was greater than the sum of its parts. The music started to become intuitive. We could almost read each other's minds when we were playing. And sometimes great things happen. Well, Bill Payne was simpler. He said it was Nirvana on stage. And it was funny. They all shared that sentiment. They knew how to play with the music, not not just play it. Magic. So what does it all sound like? Well, you can hear great playing when they harmonize with each other. Most bands stay out of each other's way, but these guys layer vocal harmonies and instruments on top of each other. And when you do that, you risk highlighting mistakes. Pitchy singing against a slide guitar or maybe a bass line that falls behind the piano 
The risk in complimenting each other is that mistakes can sound jarring. You've got to be really on. You can also hear it when they break into weird interludes and the spaces between songs. Little Feet has fun bridging songs together in new ways every night, and they're always keeping things fresh. And while they always stay within the song, they do build spaces and create room for improvisation. So you can go, but you can't get lost. And you can also hear it in their bootlegs. Great live bands like Little Feet, they created a huge market for bootlegging in the 70s. I mean, today, bootlegging feels kind of pointless, but, but taping a show in San Francisco and trading it for a tape of a San Diego show, it was, it was super interesting in the 70s because you could compare and you could contrast different performances. There are a few Little Feet bootlegs that might actually be the best recording Little Feet ever did. And so what does it all look like? Well, I mean, it looks like a lot of fun and relaxed, too. Lowell George leaning on his guitar with a smoke hanging out of his mouth. What most singers would have to really strain to crank out these vocals, he just takes a drag and sings. And he pops the smoke back into his mouth. He drops into a slide solo. Even his solos are casual. Like, like right in the middle of a phrase, he tunes his guitar and he walks around on stage talking to people. But, but he's spot on. It's really kind of hilarious, the juxtaposition between being so good and being so casual. And there's there's funny showmanship, too. Like, George is always introducing players mid-song. He says things like, well, for Bill Payne, the piano player, he yells, give it up one more time for the piano tuner, and eh, silly stuff like that. And some nights, Little Feet would close their set with a funny bit. Each, each player would leave the jam and the stage one by one until only the drummer was left. But the drummer won't stop playing. <laughs> he just goes full animal all by himself as the house lights come up. He won't stop. Okay, well, what all this adds up to? Ugh, magic. In the end, Little Feet are one of the best live bands from the era of the great live rock band. This type of skill is timeless because it's so human. And this album was their last shot, their last kick at the can, and while it wasn't a home run, it, it did give them enough momentum to keep them in the game. Feats Don't Fail Me Now is the band's simplest and most accessible album, but it still shows off all of the things that made Little Feet special. Feats Don't Fail Me Now. They didn't. So that's the album, and it's time now to swing to our big idea and see how the business of the music industry affects the sound of our music. Check it out.
One of the stories hidden in the background of everything we've discussed is the way that economics has shaped music. It turns out that the sound of music is directly linked to how musicians get paid. That will be no surprise to the economists out there, but for me at least, a really interesting way to think about eras in music is to see it as a function of economics. If you want to understand the difference between Billie Holiday and and Bob Dylan, between Little Feet and Post Malone, well, it pays to follow the money. That music is all influenced by how an artist makes a living. And as we'll see, some artists get caught in the middle of these eras, caught within changing business models, ending up in all sorts of conflict, like, like the band, or maybe what's going on today. This episode of Album Epitaph's Big Idea considers how the music business influences the sound of music. Billie Holiday, Little Feet, Post Malone. It it follows the money. All right, let's go. So let's lay out some of the basics. Primarily, there are four revenue streams available to popular musicians. Four ways to make money. I'll introduce them first, and then we can track... How when the financial power of a stream changes, the music of the era changes with it. Let's start with royalties. There there are actually two different types of copyright for each song. The first type is the songwriting. Songwriters can legally own the lyrics and the melody of a song, but that's it. They can't own the arrangement or the key or the tone of the guitar or anything else, really. Songwriting is just ownership of melody and lyrics, the stuff that can be easily written down on paper. If you own the songwriting rights, you receive a royalty when the song is sold. So just for reference, if you wrote a huge hit single in the 90s, the CD era, at the peak of the record industry, and that single ended up selling, say, a million copies, you could make roughly 100 grand. There were about 20 singles that big in the 90s. Now, this all gets complicated really fast, and there's actually a wide range of royalties, Everything I say in this big idea is simplified. But I think having a reference point like that is is pretty useful. A hundred grand for writing a huge hit single. Today, that same song, streamed a million times rather than sold a million times, it might make you 3,000 bucks, if you're lucky. Sometimes it's just a few dollars. Sometimes it's less than that. So it's not surprising to find that when songwriting royalties add up to a lot of money, you get more and more people trying to write songs. And I think that competition leads to better songwriting. The other type of copyright in a song is for the recording of the song itself, the actual physical master tapes, and the right to copy them for sale. You might call this publishing rights, and it means that if a band were to record a song and the recording was sold via digital download or whatever, a royalty is paid to the publishing rights holder as well as the song rights holder. Here, let's use Tainted Love as an example. Sometimes I feel I've got to run away. This is Soft Cell in the 80s, covering Gloria Jones from the 60s. When Tainted Love by Soft Cell is sold online, Soft Cell takes a piece of the 99 cents, if they hold the publishing rights. The songwriting royalties go to the original writer, that's Ed Cobb, he was a Motown writer in the 60s. 
Cobb probably made more money from the soft sell version. It, it was a bigger hit than he did from the original. And he probably made more money than that when Marilyn Manson covered it in 2001. I, I guess his estate made more money. Cobb passed away a few years earlier. But poor Gloria Jones, she didn't get any soft sell or Manson money. There's a couple of things to recognize here. One is that songwriters usually keep all of their royalty money, and that's different than publishing rights. Publishing rights are typically split up between a lot of people, corporations. A band might split this money between themselves, that's how Little Feet did it. But very often, it's not the band that holds the rights either. It's usually the record label. You see, to get a record deal and an advance of money for studio time, a band would typically have to sign away part of their publishing rights. Artists would have to come in with their own money or maybe have an established name to have the negotiating power required to keep their publishing rights. But another thing to recognize here is that when an album is sold, the artist might pick up royalties for all 12 songs. It's a lot easier to survive on royalties in this model than by selling songs one at a time online. So royalties used to pay out with album sales. When albums were significant sellers, artists could make a living selling albums, and the incentive was for them to put out more material, which was better than the competition. Musicians might have seen themselves as recording artists. Today, with streaming, that business model has changed. It's, it's increasingly difficult for a musician to make a living as a recording artist. The implications of this are huge, but if you want to understand why the album era has ended, well, just follow the money. But that certainly doesn't mean that, that money coming into the music industry has dried up. No, no. It's just coming from different revenue streams. There are two other ways artists can make money, but, but what's more interesting is that in the modern era, the two revenue streams have diverged. Today, artists typically follow one stream or another. One stream is all about brand value. By finding ways to build brand value and then later cashing in on it. That might look like a sponsorship or product endorsement, branching out into other businesses. I mean, there, there, there's dozens of ways to do it. But as artists continue to make less money writing and recording music, this brand value stream has become more and more common. And the last revenue stream to think about is actually the most traditional, playing shows. This stream was dominant prior to the war, and it's become increasingly important again today. If an artist can't or, or won't go with the brand value stream, their only other option right now is to tour. I know, th there are other money-making options out there, maybe sync rights for music and film and TV, but, but let's keep it simple and leave that for another episode. For now, let's tour music history to find examples of these four forces at work. We will see that when the business rewards songwriting, you get better songwriting. When it rewards live shows, you get better live music. When it rewards album sales, you get better albums. Let's start in 1936. <laughs> 
In this era, musicians like Billie Holiday made a living by touring and playing shows. This might just have been a guy with a guitar on his back, like Robert Johnson playing blues songs for a cut of the bar money. Or it could be a big swinging band doing a year-long residence at a club in Harlem. Either way, musicians made a living through touring and picking up fees for performances. No surprise, they played a lot of shows and got really, really good. The best live musicians were rewarded. If you couldn't get to these shows, the main way you could hear music in this era was by playing it yourself. Most American homes had pianos, and and many people could read and play music. If they couldn't, they, they might have had a player piano, a piano that played itself. Those player pianos were actually more popular in the 20s than regular pianos. But other than folk tunes, the songs that were played weren't typically written by the artist. Billie Holiday didn't write Summertime. She was a performer, not a writer. Pop songs came from what we called the American Songbook, a mix of show tunes, theater and musical numbers, and jazz standards that were all written by geniuses like Cole Porter or Irving Berlin or here, George Gershwin. That's Gershwin. The first was a Billie Holiday version, and that one, well, that was a stoned, Long Beach sublime version, but they're both Gershwin. There were many writers of these classic tunes. Gershwin, Porter, Berlin, they were some of the best and the most famous, but there are actually dozens of others. Many of these writers were part of a songwriting industry referred to as Tin Pan Alley. That community wrote thousands of songs between, say, 1880 and 1960. Tin Pan Alley was a neighborhood, just a block, really, in New York City. Writers would group up at offices on the block and and write tunes. The lifestyle, well, at times, it it wasn't unlike what you'd expect some marketing firm to look like. It was an office job. Suits and ties, lunchboxes at the desk, clock in, clock out, Martha's Vineyard for a week if you had a big sale, you know, that sort of thing. After the song was written, song pluggers tried to get bands and singers to put these tunes into their repertoire. The aim was for publicity to sell sheet music. It paid to have a few musicians touring the country playing your song, and it was real, life-changing money, if one of those songs eventually ended up being included in a hit musical. Well, not life, actually. At first, copyright laws lasted about 24 years. That amount of time made sense. It was the bulk of someone's working life. Enough time to be a strong financial incentive to write good stuff, but... Afterwards, the song was expected to be beneficial for all, released to the public good. You know, if the rule stayed the same until today, it would mean that music made more than 24 years ago, prior to like 1996, it would be free to use however anyone wanted. That seems kind of crazy. Kind of awesome. That Sublime song was from 1996. It would be free to listen to. Free for some kid to put into a skate video or cut up into a YouTube movie or whatever. But no surprise, throughout the decades, the big media corporations have lobbied hard to increase this term in all sorts of ways. The scope just gets bigger. Today, the term is something like 70 years after the writer's death. 
If there weren't record sales in those early days, how did songwriters make money? It was from the sale of paper. Tin Pan Alley writers were just that. They were writers. They wrote sheet music and lyrics on paper, and, and that paper was treated, in the business and legal sense, like a book. A publisher could buy the rights and sell the paper to homes. Songwriters could take a cut. In the legal world, songwriters are more akin to authors than performers. Just to give you an idea of scale, Santa Claus is Coming to Town was a huge hit in 1934. It sold 30,000 copies on the first day it was released. That's big. But on the same day, it sold 500,000 copies of the sheet music. And that worked out really nicely in the music business. A clear division of labor. Musicians take the best or, or the most popular songs out on the road, and if they're good musicians live, they get paid by club owners. The songwriters love it because it promotes the sale of their paper. The best songwriters get rewarded and the best musicians get rewarded, and the quality of songwriting and musicianship rise. It was really nice for many decades. And then this guy came in, screwed the whole thing up. In the wee small hours of the morning While the whole wide world is fast asleep Artists had been recording music to records for a few decades before Sinatra released his masterpiece in the wee small hours in 1955. But before this, the record was seen as a secondary part of the business. Musicians were performing artists, not recording artists. But a transition was underway. Record sales explode after the war. There's a bunch of reasons for it. The expansion of the middle class, uh, suburbanization. I mean, why drive all the way to the scary city when you had Duke Ellington himself in your living room in hi-fi? There was also the jukebox. Kids in diners dancing on the tables to Chuck Berry and and then there was the long-playing vinyl record, the album, like The Wee Small Hours. Sinatra's In The Wee Small Hours was the first record which was created as one complete artistic work. His songs fit a mood, a narrative arc, loneliness, heartbreak in the night. And the audience for Sinatra wasn't the cheering kids in the crowd anymore. It was the tired father sitting at home after the kids had gone to bed. A new art form had been created, the album. What's remarkable is that, even though The Wee Small Hours is the first of the album era, it still holds up today as one of the best. Anyhow, while The Wee Small Hours was artistically revolutionary, its bigger impact was to flip the industry from being a performance-dominated industry to a record-sale-dominated industry. Music wasn't so much about catching a show at the club. It was about pumping nickels into the jukebox. It wasn't so much about playing the piano in the family room. It was about collecting records for the living room. And the sound of music? Well, it was about to change with it. How many roads must a man walk down Before you call him a man How many seas must the white dove sail Bob Dylan released The Freewheeling in 1963. It's one of the definitive musical statements of the 60s. But what's significant here is that Dylan switched from primarily covering folk songs to writing and singing his own. 
that profoundly changed the psyche of the listener. For a while, Tin Pan Alley was cool. I mean, I mean, the coolest guy in the room was always Sinatra. But Dylan changed that. He made music that felt so powerful and, and urgent that the audience started to care more about the personality behind the music. It's, it's a simple point, but hugely consequential. Quickly, Blowing in the Wind changed recording from being about how great someone could interpret a classic song, like, like Sinatra, maybe the best singer ever, interpreting a Gershwin tune, who's maybe the best writer ever, to how sincere the voice and the meaning was behind the song. Almost overnight, Dylan killed Tin Pan Alley. He made these guys seem phony or artificial, definitely old-fashioned. But contrary to how these folksy guys present themselves, one result is that Dylan opened up a new revenue stream. The performer, now as a recording artist and a writer. If Sinatra pushed record sales to grow on the hockey stick curve, Dylan made those record sales pay. But the difficult thing to keep in mind here is that none of this was clear to anyone in 1963. No one really knew how valuable songwriting credits or, or publishing rights would end up being or how a musician's career would be defined by the albums she made. Most people still saw it as a Billie Holiday business. Play your show, make your money, move on to the next city. It took a full decade for people to really understand what was going on. Corn in the fields And listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water I work for the union Cause she's so good to me And I'm bound to come out on top That's where she said I should be I will hear every word the boss may say A lot has been said about the band recently. I mean... Robbie Robertson is is everywhere, so I'll resist going too deep. Musically, they're the best band ever. And in terms of bad blood, well, they've got some of the best of that too. Why? Well, follow the money. The band, like many other bands in the 60s and 70s, were caught between two different business models. At first, they were a touring band who made a living on the road. They, they split it all equally. But gradually the recording side of the business started to become more significant. Album sales and songwriting credits didn't seem to matter all that much at first, but later on, they could put your grandkids through college. I don't think this was obvious to anyone until after the band split and the touring money went away. So Robbie Robertson was the main songwriter for the band. Like, like Gershwin, he wrote the lyrics and the melodies. But the magic came from taking those to the group. And it's that magic that made people love the band. But you can't copyright magic. And that's essentially the conflict between Robertson and his bandmate, LaVon Helm. They got stuck there for 30 years. For every album re-released on vinyl, then cassette, then CD, and, and now vinyl again, Robertson keeps getting checks in the mail. Helm and the rest of the guys didn't. They were forced to play some pretty depressing shows throughout the 80s without Robertson. And that's why the conflict in the band gets nastier as time goes on. It gets ugly. It gets tragic. And that was the whole show. (laughs) 
There are a ton of nasty conflicts within bands during this era as a result of this transition. We just don't hear all that much about it, because none of them were as good as the band. Gradually though, a lot of groups end up restructuring themselves in the 70s and the early 80s. Bands become singular artists, live acts become studio artists, performers become songwriters. Elvis could feel it as early as 1975 when he complained that he couldn't find any good songs to sing anymore. And that's because all the good writers were singing the good stuff themselves. And that model continues for the rest of the century. But then, strangely, the music industry comes back, full circle. So let's turn the corner. The music industry hit an economic peak in the 1990s. This is mainly because of, not Nirvana, no, it's, it's mainly because of the CD. In the 90s, thousands of people made the switch from big, heavy, cumbersome vinyl record collections to future-proof CDs. Future-proof, b- about 20 years. And CDs were hugely profitable for record labels. They already owned the rights to the music, so all they had to do was repress it for pennies and sell it for 15 bucks a pop. The business was simple, and the margins were huge. By the way, it it seems like everyone is dumping their CD collections for cheap these days. It might be a good time to start a collection, who knows. Anyhow, no one felt sorry for the major labels when, after the boom, came the bust. Napster and LimeWire opened up the download era, and the recording industry's business model started to unravel. All of a sudden, you couldn't make as much money as a recording artist. Sales have nosedived since the millennium. If Sinatra started the album era in 1955, it built to a crescendo in the 90s, and, well, the era has slowly died since the millennium. And no surprise, this changed the sound of music again. One of the earliest to recognize and and dive into this new business model is here, with his lyrics talking about fickleness of celebrity. He says, Live for liposuction. Detox for your rent. Overdose at Christmas, give it up for Lent. My friends are all so cynical, refuse to keep the faith. We all enjoy the madness because we know we're going to fade away. Live for liposuction. Detox for your rent. Overdose at Christmas. Give it up for Lent. My friends are all so cynical, we refuse to keep the faith. We all enjoy the madness, cause we know we're gonna fade away. We got stars directing our faith, and we're praying it's not too late. Cause we know we're falling for this millennium. Today, the way major music companies in North America make money isn't so much from selling music anymore. It's from increasing the brand value of artists and opening up all sorts of ways to cash in on that brand value. You can track this in how contracts between musicians and labels have changed. There are actually six or eight different types of relationships musicians can have with a record label, but the one important here is the 360-degree deal or the equity deal. It's become so famous in modern music. It all began with that song. Robbie Williams in 2002 
He was the first artist to sign a huge 360-degree deal. But that trend has only accelerated. The biggest artists of the 2000s came first. It was Madonna, Jay-Z, Korn, Shakira, Nickelback, U2. Well, well, today, versions of these deals are everywhere. So what are these things? In this type of deal, every aspect of an artist's career is managed from a central location. This includes how songs are made. All all the creative decisions are coordinated with the business side of things. But it also includes touring schedules, merchandise, sponsorships, the streaming of concerts, VIP tickets to shows, product placement, music videos, fashion. Everything is coordinated from a team at the record label in a really sophisticated way. These artists sometimes have a weekly quota of Instagram posts. Their, Their clothing is supplied. They're forced into collaborations with other artists. They have to wear a certain hat before they hit the streets of New York. I mean, all of it. 360 degrees. Sometimes it feels like the artist is more of a promoter than a musician. The flip side is that these artists get a lot of money up front. Like hundreds of millions of dollars. And a label can put brand value on their books as an asset. And not only that, in truth, if a singer wants to be a superstar, they really can't do it on talent alone. You need a machine like this behind you to get you trending online or get you into the right playlists to sing karaoke with James Corden. You can see all of this when musicians release skincare lines, sneakers, perfumes, branded cognac. The list goes on and on. And you can see it when musicians drop corporate names into interviews or when a can of Bud Light is put in a music video. These things are everywhere now and they're more overt than ever. It's shameless. But the most common thing you'll see today They're staged collaborations. Labels coordinating bumps for brands, whether the singers like it or not. Collaborations aren't just in hip-hop anymore. They're everywhere. This week, 18 of the songs in the top 40 are collaborations. Almost half. Hit the blunt and get it. Dude. Raise bars, uh. same song, we did it. Yeah. Hot sauce poured on all jams, it's physical carry on, smoke strong, get your mama down with it. Come on. And the game fucking needed something dirty raw, tell them it's the law and we read it. Yeah. So if it's God you believe in, yeah. bob your head and just nod in agreement. Yeah, they say time's undefeated. I'ma be the first one who can beat it. Yeah. I had hoop dreams, now I shoot threes, got a little green. Eminem and Kid Cudi are one of these stage collaborations. Kid Cudi, I guess he's an up-and-comer, and and someone decided he could use a little bump with an older crowd, and at the same time, Eminem, well, he's trying to reestablish his career in rap. He could use a little up-and-comer energy. It's a partnership designed to raise brand value. Songs like these aren't released to make money through sales, and they aren't artistically important. I mean, these guys weren't hanging around together one day and decided to jam. No, this is about brand value. A lot of times the artists don't even see each other face-to-face. Kid Cudi was signed to Universal Motown. Eminem is signed to Interscope. They're both owned by the same company. Rap a few verses, spend a day or two on the music video set, let the producers handle the track, everyone's happy. Post Malone probably has the modern music business figured out as well as anyone. He's the most modern artist I can think of. Post is a talented guy who seems to be able to do everything pretty well. He came up through SoundCloud. He's a real genre blender, and he's become a master of the collaboration. His new album has at least 10 guest stars on it, and at least in the case of DaBaby and Ozzy Osbourne, Post had never seen these people face-to-face before the song was made. And, And Post is the ultimate promoter. 
In just one interview, I saw him plug a wine brand, a clothing brand, a hemp and weed brand, Crocs, a video game service, and, and dream water, which is apparently water with sleeping aids in it or something. Here, listen to Post Pump Bud Light with Jimmy Fallon. Uh, as you're sipping out of Bud Light right now. Um, <laughs> no, 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 water. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's, it's water. Water. Uh, <laughs> dude, last night you did the, uh, the, the Bud Light uh, dive bar tour. Yes, sir. Now, what is it, what, what's the deal with that? Um, you know, I'm just, as everyone probably knows who knows me, I'm a, the biggest Bud Light advocate in the whole universe. You really are, and, besides uh, my dad. <laughs> my dad who just lived on Bud Light for years. And, um, you know, we, we did one last year, and um, it's, a, it's a long process that goes into it, but, you know, finally, towards the end, we kind of rallied and just made it work, which is exciting for me. When you write the, an album, uh, forgive me, but I, how many songs do you write and do you whittle it down to? 12 of your favorites or something? Man, I mean, there's... Usually I just go in and have a, an abnormal amount of Bud Light and go into the uh, booth and just kind of sing over beats and wait until I find a good melody and then sit down and write it. So, And we've done that probably a hundred times and then just shift through them and then see which ones are smush hits. Uh, smush. Smush hits. You gotta have smush hits. <laughs> yeah, it's all about smush hits. These guys are real pros. They know where the money's at. This isn't a recorded music business anymore. That's why major labels don't call themselves labels at all. They call themselves music companies now. And these companies can put an artist into their machine and churn out money. They literally bank on it. Today, if it's not a 360-degree deal or, or some version of it, I think the only revenue stream left for an artist is the old-fashioned way. Get out on the road. Today, I think touring is the main moneymaker for many artists. Recording music just doesn't cut it anymore. I think a lot of artists are in conflict today, trying to figure all of this out. So here's where we are, about to come full circle. The, the 1920s are a bit like the 2020s. The average musician today is making their living out on the road, just like Billie Holiday did. And while back then it was Gershwin and Porter and, and Berlin sitting in a New York City office, smoking cigarettes, trying to imagine how a widow might have felt during the Depression. Today, it's, it's a new group of writers sitting at a laptop in Sweden, Nashville, LA, drinking, what, kombucha? <laughs> trying to imagine how it might feel to be on the streets of America today. And maybe that's okay. A new global version of Tin Pan Alley. Maybe a singer who sounds more like Billie Holiday and less like Bob Dylan. Unlike most of the songs nowadays are being written uptown in Tin Pan Alley, as most of the folk songs come from nowadays, this, this is a song, this wasn't written up there. This was written somewhere down in the United States. Well, Lone Ranger and Tonto, they're riding down the line. Fixing everybody's troubles, everybody except mine. Someone must have told them that I was doing fine. So if we step back a bit, we can see that the business behind music has ended up shaping the sound of music in all sorts of ways. 
Not just how it's marketed, but who it's made by and why. And that's not to say that Gershwin was better or worse than Little Feet or Post Malone. It's just to say that these things creep into our art in all sorts of ways. Always has. And in this story, man, there are contradictions all over the place. Like they say Dylan killed Tin Pan Alley in 1963, but, well, here's the thing. A few years ago, Dylan released a full album of those American songbook classics. He crooned them like Sinatra. He loved the songs the whole time. And you know what? It, it pains me to say this, but, but Blowing in the Wind, it was used in a Budweiser commercial a few years ago. Dylan took the money. I guess Dylan and Post Malone are on the same team these days. Shit. Climate change is a serious problem we can't ignore. As one of the largest breweries in the U.S., Budweiser believes we are responsible for doing our part to help. So we became the first major beer brand in the U.S. to brew with 100% wind power. To make that happen, we built our own Budweiser wind turbine farm at Thunder Ranch in Oklahoma so that every single Budweiser from across our 12 breweries is now brewed with 100% wind power. We also created a symbol to stamp our commitment in every beer we produce so we could spread this message to the world. But this was bigger than our beer, so to inspire others and start a global conversation about clean energy, we launched this initiative with a beautiful and inspiring spot in the biggest stage of all, the Super Bowl. But we didn't just stop there. We literally brought All right, well, a lot's been said here, and, and Gen Z's probably mad at me, and that's okay. You're right. That Dylan song is lame. It would be great if you dropped me an email and told me what you think or what I missed or told me if I'm on to something, whatever. I'll, I'll include your idea in our errors and omissions episode. Plus, I'd just love to hear from you. So please, info at albumepitaph.com. All right, let's wrap this thing up. Little Feet didn't quit after Feet's Don't Fail Me Now. The album was good enough to give them some momentum that would at least carry them for another five years. They followed it up with heavy touring and then the last record album, which was again supposed to be their last, but wasn't. This song off of it is called Long Distance Love, and it's one of my favorite little love songs. Just perfect in my mind. Little Feet would also record Waiting for Columbus, their biggest selling album, and it's widely considered today as one of the best live albums ever. And today, Little Feet is still loved as a cult band, a musician's band. But the wheels started to come off after Feet's Don't Fail Me Now. Bill Payne sobered up, but Paul Barrer, Lil George, Richie Hayward, they didn't. And for a time, Payne was worried that Hayward or Barrer wouldn't make it out of the decade alive. But in the end, it was George. A mix of coke and other drugs and years of hard living did it. 1979. He was 34. He died maybe 100 pounds overweight in a hotel room after Little Feet had broken up yet again. There, there wasn't anything glamorous about it. 
Payne tells a story that after one of the breakups, George rode up on his motorcycle to Payne's house and talked to him on the lawn. But Payne couldn't understand what George was saying because he was so messed up. He couldn't move his mouth properly, he said. All Payne could make out was George saying that he was going to get the band back together and, and, and make it right this time. There's a beautiful video online of the guys playing long-distance love. They're young and good-looking and sweaty and in their element, doing the thing that they're good at and having fun playing with each other. Grady teases George when he messes up a lyric. They, they make faces at each other. They're, they're relaxed. Hayward's on the kit in an exorcist t-shirt with a black eye. They live for this stuff. A perfect little love song. And then it's over. Many have tried to describe the space between people. Magic. It isn't easy. But music can get you there. It can give you access. If you put in the time and you have the talent, a band can get to that higher plane where you let go of your ego and you join something bigger than yourself. And for fans like, like me and like us, well, when we're lucky, we can feel and admire that magic. Albums like Little Feet's Feet's Don't Fail Me Now, they can help us get there. It's a practice of empathy. So yeah, I'm invested. And if you want to invest in something that matters, check out Feats Don't Fail Me Now on Discogs.com. I saw it there for the price of a month on Spotify, and, and Discogs lets you keep it. Maybe they've got a soft sell cassette or a Waylon Jennings record that can be just for you. You might also check out Phil Spector's Christmas album from 1963. Listen to that classic wall of sound and those songs that can bring you back home. Phil Spector's Christmas album is the basis of the next episode of Album Epitaph. And just like Springsteen said, everything dies, baby. That's a fact. But maybe everything that dies someday comes back. Well, that was Album Epitaph, and thanks for listening to it. Album Epitaph is produced by the Noise Cancelling Group and created by me, Zach Matthews, with support from many others. If you like this episode, please subscribe and review online. It's the only way we can keep this going. You can always share with a friend, too. That, that would be sweet. I'd also love to hear your thoughts on the episode. Do you have something you disagree with? Did I, did I miss something? Well, please let me know. Email anytime, and I will definitely get back to you. Info at albumepitaph.com. I like email, but I miss the postman. All right. Well, that's it. Okay, see you next time in the Gord We Trust. <laughs>